You know, I have this saying uh, uh, to all of us who are leaders in one way or the other, it's important to lift as you climb, in part because it's very lonely at the top. So don't worry about crowding the space. Thank you so much for joining us here today at At The Table. I am so excited to have Fumzile Mlambo Nguka, who is the executive director of UN Women and was a member of South Africa's first democratic government, including serving as deputy president from 2005 to 2008. At UN Women, she has led innovative initiatives, including the He For She movement and the Unstereotype Alliance, and in 2018 and 2019 was named as one of the most influential people in gender policy. That's aside from all her other hundreds of awards, accolades, and recognition. This is At The Table with Dr. Elam Murabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth one of 17 global UN Sustainable Development Goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries. And I've met people who have completely changed the game from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine, where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? Boomsie thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'd love to start all of my interviews by asking for two words on how you're feeling today. An example is, I feel funny, or I feel tired. You know, I feel uh, almost cautiously optimistic. <laughs> Just seeing, and, and because this is, it's because it's Women's Month in South Africa. Uh, we have a whole month dedicated to women in August. Okay. And that's where you discover a lot of women who are unsung heroes and just when you're feeling oh my god life is so hard there's something that is uh, working good so you know you have those moments of uh, your spirits being uplifted yeah. so it's one of those days when I, I just felt uplifted just listening about what some young people have to young women have to say about the things they are doing Oh, that is incredible. So we interviewed Eddie. I interviewed Eddie um, Ndofu and I asked him for how he felt and he said, cautiously optimistic. And I think it's wonderful that it is a contagious optimism that everyone is feeling. I think that is so awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe it's a South African thing, hey? I mean, I I, I got it wrapped off from Eddie. (laughs) I must have. Well, I think it's it's so funny because some of the people I'm speaking to who I'm interviewing out of like the US or Europe or Canada are like, well, you know, I'm feeling sluggish. I'm feeling, you know, sad. I'm feeling. And then everyone out of South Africa is like, oh, I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. It's just all going. And I'm like, this is nice. Maybe I need to move to South Africa. I feel like I could use an infusion of cautious optimism for sure. So asking you something like, okay, well, you know, can you tell us about an early experience that influenced your career? Is great, but I'm gonna take it a step further. Can you tell us about an early experience that influenced your career? And also, do you feel like your career now has served the same purpose as, as when you started your work in anti-racism, anti-apartheid, you know, for equality, you've been fighting for this your whole life. 
So yeah. first, what inspired it? But do you feel like do you feel like that fight has has gone somewhere? Do you feel like yes, we've achieved so much, or are we at a turning point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, I cannot say that I've had a, a career that has been linear where one thing led to the other. It's been a zigzag. And uh, I never thought, for instance, I would be a politician. Uh, so going into an activist, yes, but a, a politician sitting in parliament, a minister, a deputy president, that was not on my script. My early influence uh, uh, was uh, in a context of education being one of the weapons apartheid used against black people. And I saw firsthand uh, adults who were illiterate and what that did to their lives and what they missed. And so my determination was that if I can do anything, I would like to be able to facilitate education for as many people, especially women, as possible. And that was because in my little dining room at my home, my mother taught a literacy class. And I saw women coming in who couldn't read and write and the anxiety they, they have. And these were ladies uh, in my community that uh, re we respected and loved to make so, so much contribution. And to see them in it, and for the first time realizing that they couldn't even write, but they were such awesome speakers in public and they knew the story that needed to be told. And then I would see them when they have accomplished uh, their purpose in the literacy class. There is no way to describe that feeling. And I thought that I really would like to give this feeling to as many people as possible. But see, you know, I've worked all directions. I keep on coming back to education uh, in one way or the other. But as you know, my, direct, my career has just, you know, so you started in education. Yeah. And you started by just studied. trying to, you even studied. Okay. So you studied education. You're like, I'm going to be a badass teacher. Mm, and I yeah. might, might do a little dabble in a little bit of activism on the side. Apartheid was intense. And uh, that's the understatement of the century. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, being a public servant as you would be, uh, came with its own uh, restrictions. Uh, so you had to make sure that uh, your activism was not as prominent in, in, in the school, otherwise you expose people to our security branch, which was uh, quite mean. Uh, but nevertheless, it was also important to take some risks because uh, if you're an activist and you have to organize, you have to organize and take those risks. And I'm so proud of my students and my fellow teachers uh, with whom we tried very hard uh, to fight not just for education, but for, for a better South Africa. And then of course, uh, my uh, partner got uh, arrested and, uh, and that exposed me much more because you know some of the work you were doing underground you were a nice school teacher in the day and you know uh, after hours you got to do other things but that exposed me and all hell broke loose and uh, really have activism now is really part of my life to campaign for just the many political prisoners that we were having uh, while encouraging other people to tackle the regime, almost a contradiction. You're fighting for people to be released from jail and you're making others fight, which would risk sending them. So take us back to that, that year. Um, first off, what year is it? Why was, you know, when you say my partner went to jail, you know, he was arrested and I'm for his activism yeah. as well. And you're kind of teaching in the morning, 
being this vigilant activist at night, trying to motivate people, but also trying to release people from prison, you're kind of juggling all of these things. What was, I think, the deciding factor for you to then go from that into politics? Um, well, uh, I mean, let me just uh, also add another anecdote. Uh, and, and then at night, I was writing him letters on uh, toilet papers because that was the easiest way to smuggle a message. Uh, because at that time, I had befriended a policeman who was uh, supervising their section. So I could make this toilet message on toilet rolls, give it to him so that he would have it with him like it's a tissue paper. Uh, <laughs> and then he would write back on a tissue paper. And one day they came to raid my apartment and they found all the messages. And... Uh, and that also was the moment when it was clear that, uh, you know, I have exposed now this poor policeman. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it was not, it was not nice. But anyway, how did I end, end up being a policeman? Oh, no, no, you don't, wait a second. Fumzile, you just told us a story about you smuggling like political activism on toilet paper and your house getting raided. And you're like, anyway, so that was just a Sunday morning for me. So, I mean, Let's let's pause there for a second because I think sometimes and I'm one of the people who does it I look at you today and I'm like this is a global powerhouse. She's a political dynamo She's one of the most diplomatic people. I know she fights for women above and beyond anything else but But I I find where you have come from and the work you've done that we often don't talk about to be incredible because you did it when it wasn't cool you did it in a country where it had such high risk I mean and now we see a lot of these conversations playing out again, not to the same extremes, but definitely this conversation of anti-racism, of black lives, and where the, the intersection of gender equality and, and racism are so important, you're one mm. of the very few voices that talks about it this much. And so, so I wanna go back to, to really where it started and ask you, at any point, did you feel like, did you feel equality needed to be on the table at the same time? Did you bring it to the table at the same time? Did you notice different risks for you as a woman in the movement? Um, and is that what propelled you into your gender equality work? Or, or was there something else along the way? Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, by that time, I was already uh, uh, conscious about gender. And good old YWCA uh, initiated me uh, into the gender equality struggles. As a teenager, I was a member of what of the youth section of the YWCA called the White Teens. <laughs> and uh, being a women's movement, uh, the 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 YWCA was obviously concerned about gender equality. And uh, being a global organization, it was concerned about matters globally. So I then my eyes were open to uh, the existence of global sisterhood. Uh, mm -hmm. And before, that was before social media, my dear. So uh, you really had to find a way of staying in touch in those little FM radios to listen <laughs> to news from different parts of the world. And because, I mean, I lived uh, in a poor uh, community, uh, there was also a class angle into that. So I feel like why did you me to class and gender at the same time when I didn't even know that those things had names? <laughs> you know, it was a bit later in my life when I, I was reading literature about politics that, okay, there's something called race, class, and gender, which in the liberation movement we call the triple oppression of women. And uh, so my activism came already uh, uh, with that. And, you know, being uh, in, in a relationship and many relationships where there were powerful men, I also did not want to be their follower. I wanted also them to follow me. I wanted more women to be prominent. So I actually also then wanted to play my leadership role, not because, you know, I was the partner of or... Um, you know, sometimes women uh, would follow a party line and the party line might not suit women. 
So you need to create a voice for yourself where you can call out things that don't work for women that are important. So I was, uh, I first time I really contested and wanted to be elected was to be a president uh, of a, a national, of a, 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 an organization in my region uh, called the uh, National Organization of Women. Um, I'm sorry, Natal Organization of Women, and uh, uh, now, uh, as we called it, it gave me a platform. Both to learn, because there were so many women veterans uh, to guide and to look up to, but also there were so many young people. It was after the Soweto uprising, and uh, to be young and not to uh, devil in politics was not cool at all. So, in a way, for trust, just in terms of influx of young people that uh, you saw in the struggle, I felt that, you know, to the extent that uh, you can only do so much, I have to focus on making sure that women have a place and they end their place by demonstrating uh, how powerful they are encourage them, support them, and, and also protect them because, as you know, harassment and everything happens uh, also in political organizations. Yeah. So how old were you when you did this, when you ran for now's president? So, sorry, come again? How old were you when you ran for the National Organization of Women Presidency? Um, I, I, I was probably 22, 23 22, 23. Yeah. And was this before or after you said, okay, you know what, maybe, maybe I can't moonlight as an activist. This is going to be my full-time priority. Was this before or after? It was during the thinking. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you know, uh, one day I would wake up and say, you know what, I'm done uh, with the working in a government institution and then, uh, and then, because I love teaching, and I still love it very much. And then I would just think about those faces in my classroom, and I would say, you know, I need to create a, 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 an, an opportunity for myself to still be in the classroom. But uh, at some point, I just said, you know, I can't do this. I have to choose, and and I decided to stay as an activist promising that I will always bring education along. How old were you when you decided to do that? Uh, I was 26. 26. So yeah. those kind of first, those, that first half of your 20s was, seemed to be pretty determining for the rest of yeah. your life. You, you kind yeah. of made some choices there where you're like, okay, I'm going to lead women first at 22 running for this national organization for women. Um, I'm going to you know, while as much as you loved education, let go of that to really focus on activism and, mm -hmm. and really moving the cause of anti-apartheid, anti-racism forward. And so take us back. You're 26. You're a full-time activist. How do you become president? Well, oh my goodness, that was so far off because remember also we were still under apartheid uh, yeah. by then. So even the, 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 I mean, we were hopeful that we we're going to win. That's why we're so focused uh, uh, on, on, on fighting. But, you know, at that time, you did not even think of uh, a position that uh, exactly. you hold, hold in, in a government. I mean, I still went and did other things. I went to, as my, at, at my adult life, I worked for the YWCA, believe it or not. I came all the way around and became the youth uh, coordinator for the World YWCA. Uh, again, a, a really strong dose of feminism was injected in me in that uh, a platform, but also in a very multi-sectoral way, because uh, young people around the world were fighting against nuclear testing and fighting for peace. Uh, young people in Palestine, where we, where we had one of our strongest YWCA were fighting the issues of the moment in that part of the world. Young people in the Caribbean uh, were fighting against exploitation uh, of women and trade. You know. So I was exposed to 
young people of all sorts. But I also went there with, to convince them to help me fight against apartheid. And, and, to, and because it was a church-based, faith-based organization, uh, this was a difficult constituency to believe in a liberation movement. Uh, so part of my work uh, was to make sure that I explained why we need the liberation movement and why they must not demonize uh, the liberation movement, why it is their job to support us. So again, you know, I had a double life fighting for my country while I was working for YWCA and working for all women um, uh, in the world again. And it gave me an opportunity also to meet a lot of the South Africans that were in exile because I was then living in Geneva outside the country where I was working. And that again gave me a tremendous uh, exposure to understand the depth and the complexity of trying to fight a struggle that you are trying to internationalize. And that for me has brought many things, uh, I mean, has made many things that I do in UN Women uh, to be as, uh, as important and as uh, dynamic because it, it reminds me all of the things I had to do. It's shaped so much of what you've done at UN Women because... You know, because, you know, if you think uh, apartheid was a struggle of South Africans that received a lot of global solidarity. Uh, we did not fight alone. We fought together many people around the world from different walks of life. And I feel that gender equality is not something that should just be left for women to struggle alone for themselves. We have to have everybody uh, who believes in the rights of everybody uh, to be part of that struggle and to make their contribution. Uh, I think I learned about the importance of solidarity and the importance of nurturing it uh, so that you widen the tent of the people that are fighting on your corner who will take on your fights even when you are not there. I think that uh, during apartheid, uh, there were boardrooms all over the world, sports people, young children, people that we never made, who just did their bit. And somehow it all came together at different points uh, to create what became an international anti-apartheid uh, movement. And we are forever grateful uh, for that expression of humanity that we experienced. And I think, uh, and I need your help, uh, Allah, we need to create that strength and conviction against gender equality and continue also against racism. Uh, where people use what they have and where they have uh, to fight uh, for people, they don't have to be a member of anything uh, if that is not possible for them. Uh, they don't have to be people of great means, uh, uh, of, of great power, though it helps if you have all those things, but there is room for everybody uh, to play a role and to make a difference. So from Zile, I'm, I'm so glad you've kind of segued us here because I, it's been a question that's been on my mind um, for years now. And, and you and I have had this conversation before about what success looks like and how we get there. And one of the things that keeps coming up is we have these moments. A couple of years ago, it was Year of the Woman and the Me Too movement. And, and this year it's, you know, I can't breathe and, you know, anti-racism movement. And they get propelled because of our media cycle. The, the activism that happens every day in these movements isn't necessarily amplified until it hits this crescendo, right? And then suddenly everyone's talking about it until another media story comes and takes over. So we're not always seeing the incredible work that activists and are, are doing on the front lines of these issues. And so to those, to those people, often many of them are young people who don't necessarily have a lot of that institutional power or wealth how do we, what do we say to them? To young people who are demanding change, what do we say and how do we encourage them to continue to speak up? But also how do we create movements that are sustainable, that are 
that are powerful, that are internationalized in that say, yeah. same way. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, uh, that question actually uh, worries me uh, uh, a lot uh, because indeed uh, the stop and start uh, takes away the good energy that uh, you bring forth while you are at the top of it. Uh, you don't have to necessarily every day, though if you can, it's not a bad idea. Uh, but uh, the momentum has to be kept. I think clearly one of the things that I've learned from the uh, anti-apartheid experience is the clarity of the demands. You know, what is it that you want to change? And uh, to convince everybody, even if you may have some differences, but to have the core and the key things uh, that you are fighting so for, so that wherever you are, whoever is fighting on your part, and even if you may be in different movements and, and uh, organization, even in the same country, uh, there is a core message that is the same and it's clear, it's measurable and it's achievable. So we need to get to that point, for instance, say for instance, on the issue of uh, uh, racial inequality in the US. I mean, there is so much there to fix, but uh, we may want, it may be also a good idea to lift some of the most catalytic changes uh, that would help to address the many, many issues that are there and simplify the message. Uh, secondly, you need to have the resilience for the long haul. And uh, you need to be able to be at it, to be in the How face. How do you get that resilience, Fumzi? Uh, uh, where do we find know, that I, resilience? As someone who's been in it your whole life, where do we, where do we yeah. find that resilience? You know, uh, I guess, uh, and something that uh, sometimes I, I, I see in women and I saw in apartheid, you know, there's women, you know, and you are one of them, that you know, wherever they are, they may be doing different things, but uh, they are fighting for women in all kinds of different ways. Uh, sometimes we may never even know what they do every day in order to take on this fight. Uh, so it's important to have that mainstay, to be coordinated so that we all know that we are doing this. Uh, we also need the media on our side because someone has to help to amplify our story. And I have to say, in this day and age where there's so much uh, information, there's also too little information that matters, if you know what I'm trying to say. Oh, I know what you're trying to say. <laughs> it's very easy to displace a very huge story when it has not reached a it's a expected conclusion to rush to another one. So that is a problem that I don't know. I even wish that something I think about now, uh, after this job, do I want to try and do something in the media? I mean, I, I don't know enough about the industry to push for stories to be told in a way that helps to find conclusion. Sometimes investigative journalists do that for one and a specific story, but maybe not so much for this story. To some extent for the environment, I think it's not been too bad. We need get the story to be told. Second thing about, uh, uh, about it, about this thing of being constant, uh, is the recruitment. You have to recruit people to be on your side all the time so that uh, you always have voices that are speaking on your behalf from the unexpected places uh, as well. Uh, it must not be the usual suspects only who are raising So you're, the you're talking about making that bigger tent? Yes, that, 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 that bigger tent. And you know, for instance, if I talk about our unstereotyped alliance, uh, which is us mobilizing advertisers and marketers and brands because it's a platform that has access. And because as you know, we always never have enough resources. 
uh, as the organizations will find for these different causes, anything that you can get people to amplify and you don't have to pay them. <laughs> Take it and, and create uh, uh, that change. But you know, Allah, there are no easy answers for this question. It's a really difficult one. It's a really important one. And my bottom line is that uh, you do need everybody that you can mobilize. So how do you, how do you mobilize? Like, so, so let me give two hypotheticals here. You've been a leader in racial equality, anti-apartheid movement. You're a leader in gender equality. These are not often issues people are excited to do the work on. You know, sometimes people will come to a march. Um, they'll post something on Instagram. They'll, you know, but, but to do the work, to talk to the people in their own families, their friends, to, to, um, put their money in specific you know, uh, companies and stores that support this work. To do the actual work is more difficult and it takes a lot more energy and effort. How do you tap into that for people? How do you say, you need to be in this tent with me? How do you convince them that this is an issue that should and needs to matter to them and that they need to do the work on it? Yeah. Um, to the extent that in some cases, you can almost define a path that you suggest for people to take. You have to take your chance. And, and that is why I suppose we create campaigns because through campaigns you reach people uh, to do something that is within uh, uh, the roles that they are playing where they will uh, sort of understand uh, the, the message. And mm -hmm. uh, some of them, even when the campaign ends, and sometimes I get very frustrated when campaigns end, because I think campaigns that have to do with gender equality, none of them has reached uh, its desired goals. So no yeah. campaign, end, but also that people become fatigued, and, yeah. you know, with a campaign. But uh, gain some people out of the campaign, at the very least, uh, you know, gain new recruits who may go on to do different things to keep on uh, sustaining uh, the, the struggle for, 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 for gender equality. And then secondly, I think that it's important to also take the time to have conversation with people who are situated in places where they can make changes. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes uh, they tell you to go to hell and uh, that's all they can do. And, uh, uh, and, and, and sometimes you make some means. I actually feel when I take that leap of faith, they can only say no, but yeah. they will not uh, never think about what I said, how I, how I engage them. And of course, it's always important both to propel those that I would uh, uh, regard as the more advanced cadres and fighters for equality to go even further and to soft land those that are bystanders mm -hmm. uh, so that uh, uh, the hard talk uh, does not scare them off and we lose them. You bring, find different ways to bring them in yeah. and then... Uh, give them a, an opportunity, therefore, to undergo their own uh, change, bring this discomfort, very uncomfortable discussion yeah. on them, because it is at that nexus of the discomfort, whether you are talking about race or about gender, that change happens. People do not mm -hmm. uh, schmooze themselves uh, into being a, a con politically conscious uh, mm -hmm. Something truly and deeply disturbing uh, uh, must happen to, to them or they must experience in their interaction where they have to make a choice. So that can propel people to change positively, but we've also seen how that can propel people to change negatively. Things like the incel movement, this idea mm. that women are somehow, you know, women's empowerment has somehow meant that men get less. Yeah, um, yeah. The more economically and politically and socially empowered women are, the worse it is for the, the, the whole world and for our children and for men. And what do you say 
to those people? What do you say to that? Because that's a growing, uh, you know, and it's one of those ways where social media is quite powerful in that it's created a community for a lot of people who feel that way to amplify one another. Mm, and, mm. and you must have walked into rooms where people have said like, no, gender equality is bad. It's bad for mm. community. It's bad for social cohesion. It's bad for family values. Mm, um, mm. What do you say to those? In, like, how do you get those individuals in the tent? Do we need to get those individuals in the tent? What, what do we do when it, when, it, when it becomes so severe and opposed mm. against women? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, that group, uh, because of social media, is able to amplify their message. And that is obviously quite uh, worrying because uh, historically, uh, we have had those views, but they were not amplified because the platform to do so, especially to do so uh, anonymously, in some cases where we don't have to reveal your true identity, uh, was not possible. So now people can be both uh, racist and sexist boldly and, uh, uh, and are happy to reveal their identity, but also they can be very anonymous uh, and, and do a lot of, a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to be uh, equally vigilant in our uh, messaging, but also we have to do our work on evidence and data mm-hmm. about what changes when you have gender equality. We have to show what countries that have more and, and embrace gender equality can and have achieved. I think uh, sometimes I think uh, we have been guilty of feeling that uh, we have a just cause and we don't have to explain it. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, 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 I used to be like that a lot. It was kind of like when people challenge me, I kind of like, what kind is that? <laughs> no. Now I answer the question diligently, you know, and provide the evidence for the reason why uh, this is a just cause and this is not uh, 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 against men. How we ultimately create a world where the pie doesn't shrink. The pie expands for everybody to find uh, their place, both uh, men and women. More uh, easier said and done. I would also uh, uh, say that. And, and, uh, and it, it is exhausting, Allah. I also, yeah. uh, you probably also know that I don't think that we have a choice. So can you, can you, um some of our listeners have probably not heard often the data and the evidence behind why women's inclusion and leadership is so critical. So what are some of those, you know, earlier you had mentioned those catalytic things we can do. What has the evidence shown us is catalytic when it comes to women's equality, to gender equality? Yeah. Well, let me just start with the education. Protect the educator in you. (laughs) Protecting girls from dropping out of school and helping them uh, to stay out of school, at the very least to finish their secondary education is a tremendous role and contribution to society, to nations, and to community. And I think let's probably just keep it simple. A mother who is better educated, who can read, who can write, is likely to provide, look after herself, her maternal health, mm-hmm. and the health of the people under her care, something that is very important in every family. I think you being a doctor would agree, just basic uh, important key points for, uh, for, mm-hmm. for, for, for hygiene. A woman who is educated, who is able to stay at school, longer and does not get married off early is able to avoid poverty for the rest of her life because uh, early marriage is one of the greatest contributors to poverty and women who are empowered who are confident 
uh, tend to be able to transmit that to the next generation of women in their family uh, so that you create a situation where just within generations of one family, you have created the possibility uh, for that empowerment and the appreciation of, empower, of empowered women uh, to, to, to be entrenched. I think you have seen in many families that, that have women who are empowered in education, how much they care about their disempowered relatives. Yeah. They are likely to save them, to adopt, to pay school fees. They are, they are the ones who pay remittances and assist. Uh, so, I'm, I'm just, so I'm just talking about some of the things that ordinary uh, women who have relative empowerment are able to do. But when women are sitting in the table with real power and they are able to make the big decisions, uh, that benefits a whole lot of society. And again, mm. women don't make decisions just to benefit women. They make decisions to benefit society, but they make sure that those decisions also benefit women. I think uh, the experiences of co fighting COVID-19 have been very instructive in that way, both what powerful women who are leaders of countries have been able to do the whole nation, not just for the women, but also ordinary women who are health workers, mm -hmm. uh, who have dominated in the front line and have risked their lives every day in order exactly. to serve. No, uh, it's, and it's... That, those, those, that kind of dedication uh, uh, is important to recognize, to reward, and to talk about in case it's not obvious to everybody. No, I completely agree with you. I think there's much power in role modeling and in highlighting the work and the impact. And I also, I remember, and I, I remember telling you this when I was like 21, when I first met you, I was like, Fumza, it's kind of ridiculous that we always have to say like, yeah, when a woman's in power, she's not only working for women. No one says yeah. that when a man is in yeah. power. And I remember exactly. at the time, at the time you told me, okay, well, you try that strategy and we'll talk about this in a few years uh, and see how it, worked, how it worked out. And I found myself over the years realizing that it's not just enough to say it should be enough, but it's not. Mm -hmm. We do need to say mm -hmm. things like, yeah, the data shows, you know, if a girl goes mm -hmm. to school, mm -hmm. the GDP of the country rises by 3%. She'll have kids mm -hmm. later in life. She'll keep her kids mm -hmm. alive. Women reinvest 90% of their income into the local community as opposed often to men who reinvest 30 to yeah. 40%. So yeah. there's that yeah. net benefit that, that yeah. you bring. And I've, I've often called it that cycle of agency. My okay. grandma was, um, my grandma got married very young at like 13 or 14. She was illiterate. Mm -hmm. um, and my mother, um, her father passed away when she was 15 and she got married the very next year at mm. 16. And growing up, my grandmother, because she was illiterate, was so mm. focused on my mom getting an education. She said, even mm. if you marry young, you're going to go to mm. school. You're going to mm. get an education. That's the only way you hold power. Mm. And my mother... That's one a, hell of a grandma with a vision. Oh, oh incredible. She's incredible. You she know? is remarkable. Remains remarkable. Mm. But it was interesting because my mom went on to have 12 children, one pound, but, but raise 11 kids. Of them, six are girls. And the only thing I remember growing up was you will be self-sufficient. You mm. will get an education. No mm. one will tell you what to do. No one. So I think it's, it's so incredible because we see women who even, I think, saw the possibility of what they could have or what their daughters mm. could have and mm. made that their life's mission. It's not even yeah. just those who have had the benefit of education. It's the ones mm. who, who had, yeah. I think, who yeah. felt the absence. Yeah, and, and, and Phil, I want something better for my children. Exactly. And the, the next generation in my family has to do better than, than, than I am. And I think different parents in different ways try to do that. But uh, women almost sacrifice their own life if it will better that of their children. That's why the burden of, an, of, an, of unpaid care work rests so much on women because it is that dedication to make sure that they are protecting and looking mm -hmm. after their children. 
But then it's a, a very difficult situation because sometimes as they provide that care uh, at home, they lose an opportunity to enter the labor market. Oh, for sure. Uh, We're seeing it now which, with COVID. Yeah, which gives them a different kind of power mm-hmm. uh, if they, uh, they have their own e- 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 economic uh, independence. What are some of the, what are, if you had to give our listeners like three things and say, these are the three things we need to do in the next 10 years, we need to do hopefully now, but definitely in the next 10 years to actually even create the opportunity of gender equality around the world, not just in South Africa or the United States around the world. What are those three things? Yeah. Uh, And, and of course this is very important uh, because this is the decade of, 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 of action for us to do much messages and thank you for being the ambassador and for doing the work the heavy heavy lifting of convincing people to do uh, much more in this coming decade uh, but as as far as women is concerned i really would put a uh, women's leadership mm-hmm. in making uh, uh, m- making sure that in all the tables that matter, we have more men with real power. And I'm not even saying that uh, all women who are in positions of power will first think about women, but most of them do. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to have them there because the catalytic change that uh, is created by just having someone who has the authority to bring about the changes is, is much more significant than each one of us fighting by one walking at yeah. every door. You want inside the door, uh, inside gets the room. to set the agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Parliaments must get it right. They mm-hmm. must be examples of uh, unstereotyping of uh, powerful women, cabinets, uh, must be able so everywhere. I think uh, 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 so. Leadership is for me, mm-hmm. and feminist leadership that understands the totality uh, of fighting for humanity. That it is not just to fight for women; it is to fight for all women, all ages, and people and women of in their different uh, mm-hmm. sexual orientation. Secondly, we have to deal with the gender-based violence. Because just to see so many women living in fear, uh, uh, I don't want to, I don't have to explain what comes with all of that to the medical doctor, just from the the health, the psychology, and the, I I almost think that, uh, you know, gender-based violence is the worst form of dehumanizing women. Yeah and uh, of uh, making sure that you really put them down. And that is why sometimes women even hide uh, their experiences. And because this happens to powerful women who are powerful in so many ways. And when you hear that uh, this is what they live, we have to deal with that. The third thing you've given me three, so I have to really choose very carefully. It's a... economic justice and empowerment mm-hmm. you know uh, economic justice and empowerment of women uh, as we build back better mm-hmm. uh, that has uh, also the inclusion of women of all ages in the empowerment the digitalization which is very necessary if women are to be in empowerment uh, the looking after the environment and building back green so that our industries are not become are not part of the future problem that we are creating. Yeah. yeah. So those three leadership, uh, fighting the violence against women and empowering economically would be my three biggest and cutting across. Let's fight the norms that yeah. normalizes all these. I like how things. now. I was super impressed you kept it to three, and I've noticed now you're kind of sticking more in the bucket. You're like climate change, norms. No, but I I agree with you wholeheartedly. And what I think is so impressive is 
Um, I know you've read this, but in Paul Hawkins' book, Drawdown, he lists mm. women's reproductive rights and girls' education as yeah. combined being the most yeah. significant, yeah. powerful change yeah. we can make yeah. on yeah. Um, yeah. climate yeah. change. It's the most significant climate action. And I remember yeah. I was having this conversation with friends and they were like, no, it's refrigerators. No, it's small farms. No, it's sending a rocket to Mars or whatever. And I was like, no, it's actually women's reproductive rights and girls' education. Yeah. And, and, and so- make. Go right no, ahead. So please, please go on. I was just going to say on also on reproductive rights and everything that has to do with women's controlling and determining their their their, their bodily integrity and uh, what to, how to space uh, children is one of the most powerful. Can you imagine if we did not have contraceptives? with women uh, all over the world, and it's still a shame that uh, we do not have universal access, but I still regard the, in, the access uh, to a birth control pill, one of the most revolutionary things that has ever happened oh, in sure. life of women, because you can determine when I will have a child and how can I plan my life around this little bundle of joy. Yeah. Uh, women who do not have that right, who are forced to have children, who cannot negotiate sex, that is hell on earth. It really is. And I hear you when you talk about gender-based violence, I think, because to me, mentally, um, a lot of mentally that that physical agency you have I think you know when people talk about political leadership economic leadership you know having a public role having I always go back to if I didn't have physical power and control and agency over my own body Mm. I wouldn't even Mm. consider running for Mm. politics I wouldn't for for me I think that that's always kind of been like I need to feel safe and secure and have power both from gender-based violence, but I also mm. need to have full ownership and autonomy over the reproductive choices I mm. make. Mm. And until mm. we can secure mm. that for women, I think it'll be yeah. so difficult. I mean, I, I use um, the US right now as an example, but, but predominantly because a lot of people think, okay, well, we have, you know, contraceptives. We have, but, but the reality is that's not just what a reproductive choice is. There are mm. so many debates about women's bodies that continue. Mm. So it's almost mm. like we get distracted, you know, because we have to, this is about us. Mm. So we can't mm. focus on running for, you know, we don't get to focus mm. on running those Fortune 500 companies. We're still wondering how we're going to pay for daycare mm. or how we're going to get a plan, you know, an abortion in certain states. Mm. So mm. I think it's so critical when, when you say it's, it's one of the most revolutionary things. It is. It really, truly mm. is because it mm. propelled, I think, a whole generation of women to think about, okay, yeah. I can control yeah. my own body. What else can I yeah. control? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think, you know, I... I always come back to this with you, Fumzila, that you are such a leader. You're somebody who is so, I think, inspiring. I mean, I remember when I first went to the UN the very first time and I got to see you, I thought, wow, for, for me as a visibly Muslim woman, mm. not, I'm not black. I don't, I don't carry mm. a lot of that um, experience and persecution, but I am visibly Muslim. And I remember walking Mm. into it to a place where I did not see a lot of visible minority leadership, Mm. particularly women, um, and say, well, she's been able to do it. I can do something too. Mm. And so the power Mm. of role modeling, I Mm. think is, is, is immeasurable. And I have to Mm. ask you, who are some of your, who are some of the women and men? Who are some of the people Mm. that you look up to that have inspired you, motivated you, and, and propelled your work forward. Mm. Uh, well, uh, I mean, uh, it's uh, uh, probably almost true for many people that uh, uh, pe- that's people in your family that uh, almost uh, inspire and helped to shape you. And I would say uh, uh, my mother in particular has been um, um, that, uh, that person uh, uh, for me. Um, and I also have to say, in growing up, you know, uh, I don't know if you've had that luck, that uh, amongst your teachers, there's just that person who believes in you so much uh, that... Uh, 
helps you to to gain the confidence. I mean, I was not an an A student, but uh, I tried very hard uh, to get things uh, done. I just uh, never gave up. And I had a school principal at my high school who, for some reason, just propelled me mm-hmm. uh, to believe that I, I kind of like had wings, <laughs> you yeah. know, that uh, it was possible to fly. And then uh, in my work life, I had the, the fortune of being in uh, Nelson Mandela's cabinet. And, you know, what was exciting and motivating about President Mandela was not uh, Mandela the hero, uh, everybody knows and read about, but the Ma- Mandela the person that you talk to one-on-one, who, when he is with you and talking to you, you are obviously in awe a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, but makes you believe that you are more important in the room than him. Wow. And helps you with your own uh, ideas that uh, are not as well thought out as the way maybe he could think about things, having been uh, such a great thinker. But that helped you to say what you have to say is important too and go for it. And he even will say, you know what, you might not get it right. Uh, But the worst thing is not. Yeah. And that was very important. And I remember one day he said to me, uh, uh, when he was uh, uh, talking about uh, a position he was uh, appointing me to, and I said, "Mm, Dada, I don't know if I have the skills uh, for that. Uh, You know how sometimes as women we can can underplay ourselves? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, and and she says, you know that uh, also I did not go to school to be a president. I'm just a prisoner. I just came out of prison, and I'm trying as hard as I can be. You go try to, <laughs> you know, that's still, <laughs> and that I will never forget. Wow, I think that's incredible. It's when you. I think a lot of the experiences you've had, Fimzile, are in part so inspiring because of the way that you have shaped your own work, that you've really kind of embodied um, embodied the lessons that have been passed down from people like Nelson Mandela, and you carry it through. You are incredible about saying, okay, done is better than perfect. We need to get everybody in the room. We need to be as intersectional as possible. We need to be as justice-driven as possible. We need to be compassionate. We need... And so I have to ask, how, how do we shape our legacies for all of us yeah. who are part of this conversation to be compassionate and empowering and powerful? How do we do that if we don't have someone like Nelson Mandela in our corner? You know, um, let me just start by saying about my team uh, all over the world. Because we are in a fishbowl, because uh, we work in a sector where everyone knows what the problems are. You're talking about your team at UN Women. UN Women, yes. And how much work there is to do. Sometimes you can get very discouraged and lonely uh, every time we have a setback. You may be working in Fiji, but if there's a setback for women in Turkey, you feel it personal. This is us. This is our work because wherever women are, we are trying to make things better. And uh, I always feel that is a heavy burden uh, that uh, many of, uh, especially those that are senior, carry with them, but also across the value chain of UN women. Everybody knows that their role adds up. Uh, so I think that uh, the first compassion uh, and the, and the, uh, when you are a leader is really understanding some of the things that are a heavy burden to your staff. 
uh, and make sure that uh, when they have little victories, uh, count that and make sure that you praise them for those achieve achievements because that's, they need that sustenance in order to uh, encourage them. So I would say to everybody who's a leader, who leads in difficult situations, uh, I'm not saying that uh, be over generous with the, uh, uh, your praises uh, and so that you may end up encouraging mediocrity, but do try to give positive feedback. Uh, to make people feel uh, 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 appreciated. And I think that uh, uh, really uh, compassion uh, for, for us um, as, 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 as women, those who lead and, and as, as those who don't lead, has to be something we do also uh, uh, through our role modeling. Just always trying to show that we can be better than this and making sure that the people that you work with and other people that you meet, uh, you treat them in a way that shows that you actually just don't care bring. These are not transactional relationship, but there's genuine interest in their life. And I think there's, there's, there's the big ways to do that when we have power, but also there's the small ways to do that with your peers, uh, whether it's to just send a text in times of difficulties, is check on people, but also if you have the power and authority is to fight for something decisive to change in their, in their lives. Uh, for me, one of the most uh, thing I've been excited about, just small victory, just to fight for the intense, uh, because in the UN we don't have the resources to support intents to the extent that uh, we can, and we have awesome intents. They really make a difference. Just to have been able to fight and secure a dispensation that can provide a, a modest stipend to the intents was for me the most gratifying thing I could ever do. And of course, now trying to expand the way we could recruit intense from the global south if we tend to struggle yes yeah i hear you so i have um two more questions for you the first is really you are, about you are one tough lady <laughs> i learned from the best fumzile i learned from the best yeah um what does being at the table mean to you and 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 what does it look like to invite others to the table uh you know, I have this saying uh, uh, to all of us who are leaders in one way or the other, it's important to lift as you climb. Uh, in part because it's very lonely at the top. Yeah. So don't worry about crowding the space. <laughs> There's no uh, one else up there usually. <laughs> absolutely. And there is no uh, dignity and honor in being regarded as the first woman thus and the first woman that in 2020 should not be talking about exactly. that. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So being at the table for me means that firstly, you make your presence felt. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about being arrogant, uh, uh, but I also think that uh, you must insist to get uh, your fair share Mm -hmm. uh, whether it is the speaking role, it is the doing role, uh, you have to make sure that uh, people do not forget that we're there. So that uh, when at the end of the meeting we are summarizing follow-up, one of your ideas must be one of those. So it also means Hopefully that the top to one. Absolutely. So it also means <laughs> that you are very strategic go to these meetings you already thought out of your angle that yeah. will make sure that you make a difference and if any time you make an angle that is also going to mean that some other people some other women will be brought in and some other good men will also be brought in 
it's always important to, 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 to get that. And, and as I said earlier on about leadership, uh, wherever you are, wherever we are, we really have to be fighting for women's fair share. Yeah. And that's in generation equality, as we celebrate uh, Beijing Class 25, as we move forward, that has to be one uh, piece of the agenda, uh, yeah. uh, one piece of the decade of action that has to be completed. The representation of women uh, at all levels and meaningful representation at that, not token. Not tokenization. Representation, yeah. not tokenization. Yeah. So my final question for you is one that I ask every guest. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a question really about something you hold valuable. It might be a book. Mm. It might be a piece of advice. It might be a person. It might be an idea, a television show, a recipe. It doesn't, it, it, it's completely up to you. But if you had to bring one thing to the table, to this community and say, this is transformational, what would it be? Hmm. That's, that's a hard one. You know, I actually uh, think, I mean, it's intangible, uh, but uh, uh, confidence, confidence is very important because uh, if you will not believe in yourself, you could make it very hard for others to believe in you. <laughs> Uh, and I'm talking about uh, confidence with humility. Yeah. Uh, because uh, you have to be strong. So I'm therefore, I'm telling women not to act like bosses when they are bosses, not to be turned off by people saying they are bossy. It is very important when you have power that you seize it, you have the confidence to do it, but it's also important to temper that with uh, some humility and humor mm-hmm. uh, uh, so that uh, you are personable and people can pay attention to you because you also don't want to be so tough in such a way that then people just shut out because they don't want to listen to you but mm-hmm. don't let go stay on your point be confident be the boss you are meant to be it's your space. Take it. I love it. Be the boss you're meant to be. Thank you so much for joining us. It has been incredible to get to talk to you and to get to share, I think, the incredible experience and knowledge and wisdom and humor and um, confidence that you have with, with this community. I cannot thank you enough for, for saying yes to being here. Thank you so much and keep up the good work that you do. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lamb Thank you for joining us.